our foreheads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this wonderful privilege, this honor of gathering together as family in the unity of the faith, Father. Thank you for the completed canon of Scripture. We know that the very mind of Christ is the tie that binds us all together. Thank you for gathering us together in this form of fellowship that none of us should become familiar with, for it gives us that privilege, that opportunity to encourage each other for as long as it's called today. So thank you, Father, for our family here at North Christian Church. We pray especially for those that are lost. Um, There's just so many, Father. It's overwhelming at times to think about. But we thank you in the same breath for the opportunity to evangelize even one so that we might have a new brother or sister in Christ with us forever and ever. We are most grateful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt, to make an evening like this even a reality. May we never become familiar with it. We ask for blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this evening's message title is Why are the Apostles So Encouraging? By Grace They Were Prepared, uh, Part 22. Uh, just a quick thank you to Scott for all the visuals regarding the flesh. Remember Horshack? Ooh, ooh, anybody? Young people like I have no Sean's like I have no idea who that is. <laughs> Welcome back, Carter. That's the flesh to you, huh? You got a twisted mind. <laughs> Anyways, thank you for the visual. It made me laugh. Here's how the spirit began our lesson on Tuesday. <clears throat> Worth reiterating, getting us situated this evening. The faithful keep on believing, waiting on God over time. Now, this is a principle that's going to be woven into our lesson this evening uh, in terms of perseverance. We're going to hear this word perseverance this evening. Uh, the phrase through faith, by grace through faith, has been uh, sort of a, a major piece, if you would, of our lessons as of late as well. But the point the Spirit's making right out of the gate here is that the faithful keep on believing and waiting on God over time. And obviously we're talking about believers here. Um, through faith implies patience if it's going to show itself as true faith through faith implies patience if it's going to show itself as true faith eventually we will receive the things of god if everything were given to us at once just for the sake of perspective if everything were given to us at once there's real no test there's really no uh, test of faith therefore no faith is required now you might say, this seems like you're splitting hairs and double speaking. I'm really not. Let me say that again. If everything were given to us at once, there's no real test of faith. And as I've taught you in the past, taste, uh, faith must be tested for it to be consummated in the soul of an individual. Otherwise, you have no idea if that faith will ever hold up muster. Faith has always been tested by God. 
So again, there's no real test of faith, therefore no faith required. And that doesn't uh, leave us with conviction or confidence uh, at the end of the day. And God doesn't want either of those things to be uh, present in our souls. He wants just the opposite. Furthermore, remember that God glorifies himself by sanctifying us. So this is a premise for this evening. God glorifies himself by sanctifying us. Therefore, his will is to sanctify us. In other words, if he's glorified by sanctifying us, then of course he wants to bring glory to himself. Therefore, his will from the get-go, 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So right out of the gate, we know that his will is to sanctify us. Why? Because it brings glory to him. It's easy. As I've taught you in the past, faith must be annealed like a metal. And if you know what annealed means, I don't, you don't need to be metallurgical experts all of a sudden. All annealing does is basically heat up a metal to a certain temperature and the molecules on the inside of the metal relax. Uh, think of them being sort of uh, stressed against each other. And you heat them up and they vibrate and they loosen up and they relax and they form a tighter lattice even. Uh, these are some of the things I learned in engineering school, but the analogy holds true. Faith must be like uh, a metal in the sense that it is annealed. And what annealing does, again, is by heating up a metal, the internal molecules rearrange. And when it cools back down, the metal is less stressed and actually stronger. Our faith is like that. God puts it through the crucible, often trial by fire, so that our faith annealed and strengthens with less internal stress. So to put things into perspective, it's his desire to sanctify us because it's his desire to glorify himself. There's a lot of people out there that think that um, they have the ability to sanctify themselves to bring some glory to themselves. But that's just the flesh speaking. So it's his desire to sanctify us because it's his desire to glorify himself. If that means testing our faith to strengthen it so that we can bring him even more glory as vessels, then he's going to do just that. I was thinking about Frank, for example. What do you think is going on with his faith right now? Do you think maybe he's being annealed? Maybe his faith is being strengthened? Don't flip through the Bible, sir, while I'm speaking. Thank you. It's a distraction. Think of Frank right now. Seriously, or anybody that might be suffering. Some of you have family members that suffer day in and day out chronically. And the only thing I can give, the only counsel I can give anyone that suffers chronically is that God's working on their faith. What else can I say? As the Spirit's been pointing out, one of the key areas of fruit bearing for the truly faithful is perseverance. This is one of the key elements of Jesus' foremost parables, the parable of the soils. Go to Luke 8.9. Luke 8.9. <clears throat> So true faith, as we're going to continue to see, even with the words of Jesus, perseveres. We have a whole doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. 
uh, in view here. This is one of the key elements, and maybe you've not seen it before, but it's one of the key elements of Jesus' foremost parable, the parable of parables, which of course is the parable of the soils. Luke 8, verse 9, his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, <clears throat> so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Those in the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And those, they have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity or completion. But the seed, and all those, those are examples of unbelievers, but the seed on the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, and hold it fast, and bear fruit with what? Perseverance. So you see in Jesus' parable of parables, what he's saying is if you're a true believer, you will bear fruit with perseverance with perseverance and so let's just focus on that jesus really drives home the distinction of the true believer in christ a true believer does not hide the light even as we're going to continue to see in this passage rather with a changed heart he desires to share it with the world in accordance with god's ultimate desire which is up on the board first timothy 2 4 god desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth so one of the basic premises of being a true believer in Christ is that you want to share the good news. There's a lot of people that want to share the good news but still have to learn. And so the caution from a pulpit like this one is don't just rush out. Sit, be humble, learn the Word of God, and see when and how He brings in what we would call divine appointments in your life to share the good news. But if you have a changed heart, you will want to share the good news. And that's part of persevering. That desire won't go away. The fact that a man uh, is born totally depraved, or someone that's born totally depraved, can ever even hope to shine this light on behalf of God is a miracle in itself. Look what he says in verse 16. Now no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to the light, or come to light. In other words, as you persevere, as Jesus taught in the preceding parable of the soils, this is the parable of the lamp, the truth will be known. And I hope you see the connective tissue between these two parables. Make no mistake about it, there's a reason why they're back to back. If you focus your attention on the topic of salvation, which is the primary topic in view here, then what you'll see is a thread of what we call in theology the perseverance of the saints up here on the board. <clears throat> Simply stated, a true believer will always persevere by grace through faith, as opposed to an apostate, for example, 
who eventually fails due to lack of true faith. God doesn't fail at the things he does. So if he changes a heart, and now this person has a heart for Christ, they will always have a heart for Christ. And Jesus Christ said, I, not, I lost not one. Jesus Christ is not in the habit of losing believers. The only person that can step away or fall away, as the parable said, from the faith is in a person who was never saved in the first place. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you're saved, you will persevere. You may have fruit for a time that nobody sees. That little desire to evangelize, which keeps you coming to class, let's say, early on in your spiritual career, let's say. That little thing that gets you up in the morning. Whatever that is, Lord, use me somehow. Let me share this good news. I'm brimming over. I'm so, I'm so elated with the fact that you chose, you elected me to salvation, even though I wasn't deserving of it. I want to share this good news with people that I care about and people that I don't care about. So there's this idea of the perseverance of the saints that Jesus speaks about right out of the gate when he talks about salvation. Simply stated, a true believer will always persevere by grace through faith. doesn't mean you're going to have a perfect record. It doesn't mean you're not going to fail. But you will persevere and you will always bear some fruit. And this, of course, is opposed to an apostate who eventually fails due to lack of true faith. So it makes sense after knitting the parable of the soils and the parable of the lamp together that Jesus makes a general statement about salvation itself. And he wasn't shy about these things. And as evangelists, we're all evangelists in some way, shape, or form. We all have a commission uh, on our life. We call it the Great Commission. Um, after knitting the parable of the soils and the parable of the lamp together, Jesus makes the general statement about salvation. Look at verse 18. So take care how you listen. Back to the point I was making, you should say this to someone. I think uh, Scott mentioned it on uh, Tuesday. We should actually question people. If we think there's something awry in their soul, if we think that they're not it's possible based on what they're telling us about their faith that they're not actually saved, that it's a possibility that they're not saved, then we should throw a challenge out there and say, you better be careful what you're listening to because there's a lot of lies out there. There's a lot of things that cater to the flesh, that appeal to the flesh. So take care how you listen. This is what Jesus was saying. Take care how you listen for whoever has to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. So the point up here on the board is, take care how you listen. This is a, a general statement from the Lord, the Messiah himself, the Savior himself. Take care how you listen. Those who refuse the light in time will not have the opportunity at the great white throne judgment. After all is said and done, it's appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. Remember that. There's no second choices. You don't die and go, oh, I really didn't know. I was confused. No, you weren't. Those who refuse the light in time will not have the opportunity at the great white throne judgment again. It will be too late, and all light will be removed from them as they are thrown into outer darkness, the lake of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So if you care about anyone, 
If you have any fervency whatsoever about the gospel, and if you're saved, you will. That's the point that Jesus is saying. And you will persevere somehow on that front. Then your job uh, is to challenge people when presenting them with the gospel. Don't just gloss over. Don't say, oh, it's okay. You say you believe in God, or you know, maybe you even say you're a Christian, or maybe you even say, when I ask you, do you believe in Jesus? Oh, yeah, I totally believe in Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Did you just say some prayer? Did you just get some coin from some traveling evangelist at the park or something like that? I mean, what, what is this about? What, what about your faith? We should be challenging people. Jesus did not shy away from it, and he's our prototype. And if you know anything about Paul, you know he didn't shy away from it either. <laughs> so he says in verse 18, So take care how you listen, for whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, has uh, shall be taken away from him. This is akin to what Jesus had taught earlier regarding where a person's faith lies. And in keeping with our current emphasis on through faith, that has come up uh, over the past few lessons, through faith, every person who calls themselves a Christian or a believer must examine themselves. As Paul stated clearly up here on the board, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, uh, Paul, trained by Jesus, obviously, didn't have a problem with challenging people. Whole churches wrote a book, challenged the whole church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Are you even, in the, are you even saved? <laughs> or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? That's a... Another metallurgical assayer's term, I've taught you that, test, dokimatsu, dokimayon, examine yourselves, see if there's any uh, impurities there. And who do you think Paul got his passion from on this topic of examining oneself? Who, who trained him up? Jesus did. The same person who told the parables we just read. So it makes total sense that he would cause individuals to pause, just like I have, just like Scott has, faithfully from this pulpit. Asked everyone in here to pause. And you know what? Because of that, people have been saved. How do I know? Because they've told me. Standing members of the congregation saying, you know, I just got saved. So I guess it does pay off to be like Jesus Christ. I guess it does pay off to challenge people. Huh. It's not novel. That's the whole point. It, you know, the churches nowadays are so wimpy and weak, and they carry around these watered-down Gospels, and they, they, they glaze over, and they say, you're a good little boy, Jimmy. No Jimmy's in here, right? Right? Just say this little here prayer and grandma will be all happy and we'll just skip, you know, skip to the loo. Does anybody do that anymore? <laughs> I think I saw Scott. Scott, you do it. Yeah, you can say it's all right, it's good, it's family. Take care what you listen to, that's the point. Again, this is akin to what Jesus had taught earlier regarding where your faith lies up here on the board. Faith in the rock. If there's one outstanding quality of a rock, 
it's that it's is solid and it's standing. Isn't that when you think about a rock, what do you think of it? It's just solid, it just is. Which is why we use the term rock solid to describe unwavering things. If your faith is in the rock, you will persevere, just like a rock does. That's the whole idea. A rock perseveres, doesn't it? You can throw it. You can skip it off the ground. You can do throw it off a tree. You can run it over with a car, and it just sits there and goes, <laughs> That's what a rock does, doesn't it? It's a beautiful example. Like any analogy, it's not perfect, but you get the point why the Bible would use a rock to describe the rock and even the little rock. Go to uh, Luke 6.47. Again, the point on the board, faith in the rock. If you have faith or if your faith is in the rock, you will persevere. Luke 6.47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed. And the ruin of that house was great. Doesn't mean there wasn't a house. Doesn't mean there wasn't some edifice or some infrastructure in view. There was, just like there's a lot of people out there with some form of human faith. And when that faith is put under load, it crashes down. That was how we started off, right? True faith is tested to see if when it's examined, it actually holds up. And that's all Jesus was saying. If your faith is in the rock, you'll be, un, you'll be perseverant. You, you won't waver. You might have problems here and there, but you will persevere. The more we learn about Jesus' approach to the faith, the more we realize two fundamental things. One, true faith is simple. True faith is simple. Number two, true faith is practical. I know people stumble on that, but that's the truth. True faith is simple, and it's practical. And I encourage you, honestly, all of you, to think about these two things as you read your Bibles, especially the Gospels. You'll see how simple Jesus made it, how simple he wanted it. He said, I just want you to have faith like these children here. You see, because they're not all messed up like you are. We were talking about that before class, too. One of the problems with growing up is we have more and more stuff in our brains. And the more, quote, unquote, edu and you're speaking to a, a, ver a very well-educated individual, so I get it. I'm not saying, I'm saying that in humility. I'm saying I understand. The more educated we get, the more difficult it seems to be, the more cobwebs, the more occluded, if you would, um, our vision is. And so there's just a lot to get out of the way. And that's why Jesus said, I don't want you to be in that situation. I want you to have the faith of a child. This isn't complicated, so stop trying to rationalize everything. You know, you pale in comparison to the God of the universe. You pale. 
So stop trying to think of, stop trying to figure out things that you have no, you didn't have the ability to reason out. But in man's arrogance, they think they do. True faith is simple. It's also very practical. So I encourage you all, you, all of you to think about that, especially when you read the Gospels and the red letters. I find it untenable at this point to spiritualize the words of Jesus Christ. I understand why people are motivated to do such things. It's because if you spiritualize something, in many cases it relieves you of any real responsibility to it. Seems like in order, people are okay with going simple with the gospel. But practical? Eh. Eh. What do you mean there's evidence? There's evidence of saving faith. If you don't believe that, then you don't believe what Jesus said. You might as well throw your Bible out. But it's easier to spiritualize things because in many cases... It relieves you of any real responsibility to it. And I'm not speaking as a legalist here, proposing we all run out and, you know, do this or that out of some manufactured sense of responsibility. All I'm teaching you here is what Jesus and his apostles taught over and over and over again. That is, that if you are saved, you will, by grace through faith, persevere what kind of fruit does a good tree produce? Good fruit. Duh. Oh, it's so complicated. It's really not. What if you're a bad tree? Bad fruit. Oh, this is like rocket science. Oh, my goodness. So if you're saved, you're a good tree. When you persevere, you're going to produce what? Good fruit. I didn't say that. What do you want me to do? Lie to you? You have a new creature if you're saved, right? The only thing that new creature can do is what? Produce good fruit. Amen? That's all he's saying. But let's pontificate. Been there, done that. You will, by grace through faith, persevere. For that's what it means to have built your house on the rock. Again, the point of the board, faith in the rock, if there's one outstanding quality of rock, that it is solid in its standing. This is why we use the term rock solid to describe unwavering things. So, if your faith is in the rock, you will persevere, just like a rock does. Now, this is where the Spirit took us into an old concept I taught maybe ooh, seven, eight years ago now, on the idea of faith and fruit, just to clarify things. True faith always precedes godly fruit bearing. Luke 6, 43-44. Religion supposes that faith is built, uh, is the fruit of fruit-bearing, as if it is somehow achievable through works. Supposed fruit-bearing. The latter is the work of the flesh. In other words, it's always faith that produces good fruit. You don't go in the reverse direction. It doesn't work that way. You don't start with fruit and then manufacture some faith. It doesn't work that way. Fruit is evidence of something that what? Already exists. But it's not the manufacturing plant for faith. But that's what religion tells us. Do these things and you have faith. No. 
Go to Luke 6.43. Luke 6.43. See, the flesh hates this because it just it strips the flesh of any ability to manufacture anything that might lead to what it believes is its own sanctification, setting itself apart by its own means, by its own abilities. Luke 6.43, For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. I alluded to that earlier. This leads us up to a very good principle we received on Tuesday while Scott was describing his encounter with a uh, rational Muslim. Now there's... Rational and Muslim. It's like uh, complicated. Because you're not going to tell a Muslim, a practicing Muslim, that they don't have faith, are you? They actually do have faith. It's just misguided. It's faith in something that's not godly. It's faith in another god. Allah is not our god. They're not the same god. Even though the ecumenical church and... uh, Anyways, faith and fruit. Trying to see and understand spiritual things by making natural sense is a lost cause. Sadly, there is no surrender to Christ in many Christian churches because their doctrines appeal to human rationalism. Oh, I, could, I could fill this place out. We'd have to build out into the parking lot if I started teaching human rationalism. Trust me, I spent 20 years in business development, marketing, sales, the whole nine yards, even engineering. I could engineer something that would sell to the masses. I would call it Christianity. I'd maybe take the cross that's on the side of it and put it up on top, maybe flash some lights, throw, you know, have a bigger rock band, start selling a cheap, watered-down gospel that's accommodating to man instead of God. Uh, call it grace, though. Call it grace. Write a few books, go on television, charge, though, because you know how that goes. If I charge, more people will read them. Don't get me going on that. Sadly, there is no surrender to Christ in many Christian churches because their doctrines appeal to human rationalism. This is like starting to run a race in the opposite direction. The gun goes off and you run in the opposite direction. When you, when you entertain human rationalism as your entree into the faith, you might as well run in the wrong direction. You might as well go to the next local 5K They blow the gun, and you literally run backwards. Turn around and face in the other direction and start running in that direction. That's how ridiculous and how futile it is to use human rationalism to explain faith. At the end of the day, it's just arrogance. Many so-called Christians haven't gone before the Lord with the humility that says, simply, I'm an unworthy sinner. Please, Lord, save me by your grace. They haven't honestly relied on God's grace yet. They're trying to manufacture their own way. They're trying to get their own ticket to heaven. As I taught, salvation is not about a ticket to heaven. Salvation is not about a destination. It's about deliverance. 
But if you want to sell the cheap gospel, that's what you tell people. Hey, kids, I know you're only five. Would you rather go to heaven and be with God and the white doves and the light? Or would you rather go to hell and the pitchforks and the fire and the brimstone? Well, then say this prayer and you can go to heaven. Kids don't eat, can't even spell depravity. Never mind understand it. There's a lot of Christians out there that haven't had this conversation. Maybe it is in part because somewhere along the line they haven't been challenged. Maybe someone hasn't said like Jesus, hey, take care what you listen to. Make sure you listen to the right gospel because we know from Scripture there are a lot of false spirits, false teachers, and even false gospels that peddle a different Jesus. As the Spirit brought out in our last two lessons, the reason is simple and ancient. It's largely because the flesh wants some credit in the transaction up here on the board. Futility. The flesh wants to stake a claim to life, but it's dead, and therefore literally incapable of doing so. A corpse cannot get up and walk, can it? If it does, you might want to get out of there. I'm just saying. Can't. It's dead. But that's what human rationalism tries to do, give life to a corpse. Rationalize some way to heaven. A corpse cannot get up and walk. Trying to use human rationalism to, quote, find your faith is supposing this very thing. See, that's one, of the, that's one of the telltale signs, one of the litmus tests for a person who's truly humble when you give them the gospel. If they're trying to rationalize their way into or challenge every little nook and cranny of the simple gospel of Jesus Christ, chances are they're not ready yet. They're still arrogant because they're trying to rationalize something they cannot, which is faith. They're trying to manufacture some faith, just like they manufactured faith in other parts of their life. I have faith in myself. I'm a self-made man. Leave me alone. I know how to do this. Look at me. I've got a big house. I've got a car. I've got a job. I've got a trophy wife. I've got all these things. Look at me. It's worked so far for me. So I'll just rationalize yet another thing. It just happens to be faith. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Sorry, my friend. Even unbelievers can do all those things, and they do all those things every day. But you'll never be able to rationalize faith. You'll never be able to manufacture faith. You know why? One simple reason. Who gives faith? God does. Which means you can't make it on your own. So unless you're humble, because God gives grace to the humble, faith is a grace gift, guess what you're not getting? You're not getting faith. You're not getting saved even. So you can go ahead and rationalize away. And I, trust me, guys, I've been around people like that. Very, 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 very intelligent people who were destined to the lake of fire, last I knew. Rationalize with the best of them. Argue with the best of them. Big deal. They're idiots. Meanwhile, you got, you know, relatively simple human beings going to spend forever and ever with the Lord.
Why? Because the Lord gave them faith, not the arrogant person. Well, let's try to finish up our work in John 6. Go to John 6.64. This is where we left off on Sunday. <clears throat> you know, the more I evangelize people, the more I learn about truth and the Word of God, the more I realize that um, I'm never going to evangelize someone with rationalism. Unless they come with a humble faith, the conversation always ends the same. I'm tired and worn out because the flesh is difficult to deal with when it's raging in an unbeliever. And they're either more confused or, or going like this. What are you rejoicing in, O oh unbeliever? that you outwitted someone with human rationale? The reality is that that doesn't even matter. John 6.64 But there are some of you who do not believe. Remember, Jesus was in a crowd of so-called disciples, and he said, But some of you disciples do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So in other words, you can't shoehorn your way. You can't, you know, by brute force, force your way into the presence of God. Unless you're drawn to him which is an issue of election, which is an issue of God's omniscience, which is an issue of him understanding that you would believe in Jesus Christ at some point. Unless he draws you based on that criteria, on the merits of his own son, you're not coming. So you can't shoehorn your way into heaven some other way than through humble surrender to Jesus Christ. Isn't that what he said to the Pharisees? Unless you believe that I am he the Messiah, the Savior, you will die in your sins. Is that overly complicated, by the way? No, not at all. That's the whole point. It's not complicated at all. Where's all the human rationalism? You know where human rationalism comes up in the Bible? And there's pages of it? When he's dealing with idiots like lawyers and Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and all these other so-called intellects. And that's what, one of the things I love about Paul because he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, remember? So he could have the conversation with these people and then say, yeah, I've been there and done it. Honestly, I'm, I'm with you. I was a Pharisee. He's a Pharisee. Remember Gamaliel? Yeah, I trained under him. The legend, you know. Trained under him. It's all garbage. I consider it all rubbish. All I want to know now, and I don't come to you in superiority of speech or wisdom even, I just want to know Christ and him crucified. Is that difficult? No. Why would it be? Why would it be? Do you really want it, you really want the gospel to be supremely complicated for a 14-year-old kid or a 15-year-old kid who's right at that age where he can actually understand depravity and have the humility to start? Do you want it to be so complicated and so convoluted with human rationalism that the person walks away frustrated? That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ at all. That would make him a liar. So for some of you listening to my voice right now, cut it the hell out. 
Stop being so uh, arrogant. Stop thinking you're all that. From Sunday's lesson up here on the board, breaking fleshly cords, Jesus broke the flesh's desire to profit by stating that unless the Father draws a person, they are not saved, no matter how their flesh exerts itself. Unless the Father draws a person, they are not saved. Therefore, with broken flesh, many withdrew, proving their lack of faith, being unsaved. In other words, amongst the disciples gathered around Jesus were a few, we don't know the number, that were trying to shoehorn their way into the faith. They actually had never surrendered, but they were in it. Do you understand? They were shoehorned them, they shoehorned their own way. But Jesus was basically saying, unless my father draws you, you're going to get stopped at the door. Like when he says, I never knew you. Get away from me. But, but, but didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we teach in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we? I, don't, I, don't, I never knew you. But, but, no, there's no buts. I never knew you. My father never drew you to himself through me because you were too arrogant. So John 6.66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And there's a finality there in the, in the Greek, remember. Um, verse 67, so Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Of course, this is when we receive Peter's famous response in verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? That's how I feel. If you're saved, I don't, I, I don't know how you wouldn't feel that way. Where else are you going to go? If you're saved and you've been changed, where else are you going to go? It doesn't get any sweeter. And remember, it's not about all pigtails and dimples and smiling every day. It's about peace, like I wrote about in that blog recently. Peace is the transcendent gift that Jesus promised, right? My peace I leave with you. Didn't say I'm going to leave a smile on your face because carrying your own cross sometimes is painful. Ask Frank, who might be in a, I don't know if he's in a hospital room right now. Who are we going to go, though? Where are we going to go? And Satan's over there, you know, every step of the way. I'll put a smile on your face. I'll give you desires right now. You know, like Matthew 4 when he tempted Jesus. You're really hungry, aren't you? It's been 40 days, huh? Why don't you turn the, the rock here into bread? I'll give you all of this. That's what Satan does in all our lives, right? Smaller scale. I'll give you all your desires right now. And you'll smile. But it's like Chinese food, right? Half an hour later, you're like, I'm hungry again. Right? That's the, that's the gimmick that Satan uses. That's the whole gimmick of human rationalism. That's the whole gimmick of arrogance. It doesn't last. It never lasts. It never has lasted. In all of human history, it's never lasted. But as we learn in Romans 1, people are wonderful inventors. They just invent another way. John and I were talking about like uh, Darwinism. You know, at the end of Darwin's life, he didn't believe his own theory. But yet, people still cling to it. It's like evolution's ridiculous. You tell me uh, under Darwin's principles how the eyeball evolved. One organ of many. 
is ridiculous. But it's for them, it's better than Jesus. It's unbelievable. That's why you should know, as hard as this is to realize, that the people in hell deserve to be there. Because they have actively suppressed the truth. So says Holy Scripture. So Peter says, where else are we going to go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Amen? Amen. That's where we ended on Sunday. Um, less, a little over 10 minutes left, so we'll just keep plugging on. So that's where we ended on Sunday, which is actually a little further than we got uh, with Scott on Tuesday. Uh, but pressing on, as we continue to contemplate the apostles, let's keep this in mind again. Now, I don't know how often he's going to have me say this, but I say this a lot. I really do. Anybody know the, at least one of the verses? James, what? Thank you. Someone paid attention. Yay. James 4, 6, God gives grace to the humble. Faith is a grace gift given to the humble. That's it. The arrogant, you don't get it. He gives it to the humble. We noted, again, through faith, that phrase. We were in Hebrews at the time, but we see it elsewhere. Paul wrote about, through faith, being contiguous for every form of deliverance given by grace from the Lord. Up here on the board, Galatians 3.3 3 in the New Living. How foolish can you be after starting your new lives in the Spirit? Why are you now trying, see how he says trying, to become perfect by your own human effort. It's silliness. It's futility. What are you doing? What are we doing here? Why would you do that to yourself? Why would you? Because, let's face it, we get tempted. Every so often when Satan says, I'll give you a smile right now, you go, cool, let's do it. <laughs> You're like, yay! And then you crash and burn. And whatever that gimmick was, you realize, oh, man, I got duped. Don't act stupid. You've been duped a hundred times in the same thing. Just saying. How many unique dupes have we ever experienced? Usually it's the same one over and over and over and over and over again. And Satan's like, this is like nothing. Again, here's our running framework for our lessons, just to get back into the saddle. Sending the apostles out. We are on why the apostles so encouraging. Jesus called them. We covered that in great detail at the beginning of the series. And we've been sort of perched on Jesus trained them. And then, of course, we're going to get to Jesus sent them out. So we are still on the second bullet on the board. So let's establish some of the other, let's call them obstacles, that Jesus faced when training up the apostles. And Do we not have obstacles in our own lives? Of course we do. So here's a list of five things that we can at least identify as what the apostles lacked. So we had to train them up. The problem is they lacked understanding. We'll see that. Luke 18, 31, 34, and some other places. They lacked humility even. Matthew 20, 20 uh, forward, Mark 9. They lacked faith. Matthew 16, 5 to 11. They lacked commitment. Luke 5, 11, 22, 31, and on. And they even lacked power. Matthew 17, 16 and 17, John 20, Acts 1, 8. So these are our role models. <laughs> these, are the, these are the ones that started the early church. Yeah, they were human beings. They were flawed individuals. Their hearts would change when they were saved, but heck, they were still carrying around that corpse. 
that likes to tempt us. Our bad roommate, or as Scott says, Horshack. If we're honest, when we all look at, uh, or when we look at this list on the board, is it fair to say that we can all relate to the apostles? Of course we can. And that's why they're encouraging to us. Because there wasn't any, if anything, they were unremarkable men. Fishermen, you know, zealot, tax collector. There's nothing remarkable about these people. Some of those people were actually not too high on the social standing. So we can all relate to the apostles. I find that very encouraging. I'm glad you do as well. I think you'd have to be one arrogant person to say you haven't or still don't to some degree or another still struggle with the things on this list. I mean, who hasn't struggled with understanding humility, faith, commitment, or power? Today! Some of you are like, today? How about the last 30 seconds? When you said it was only 10 minutes left, I was like, you giddy up! I got a nice cold brewski in the fridge. I haven't stopped thinking about it ever since you said there was only 10 minutes left. So in any case, we're going to slow down and survey each bullet in this list. Uh, we're almost out of time. Well, that helps things, right? And again, we're simply trying to establish some of the other obstacles that Jesus faced when training up the apostles. So the first one is understanding. For starters, we have a very encouraging passage that describes a dialogue between Jesus and the apostle Peter. And as we read this wonderful passage, think about the dichotomy that Jesus was working with here. There's always this dichotomy. On the one hand, he has a man who is obviously in possession of at least enough humility to follow Jesus, right? He has faith. He's persevering, just like Jesus said he would. He didn't run away. He said, where else are we going to go? So we know he has enough of that, but yet he lacks in these same areas. His name, his very name is Petros in the Greek, which means a small rock, a chip off the old block, alluding to the rock, Jesus Christ himself, who is immutable, immovable, unchangeable. Jesus Christ is same yesterday, today, and forever, right? So says scripture. Go to Matthew 16, 15. We'll catch some scripture, and then I'm going to close. So there's always this dichotomy, and I try to think about, you know, what Jesus was going through. Uh, I guess to some degree, being a shepherd, him being the great shepherd, myself being an under-shepherd, I see some of this, you know, it's always that dichotomy, like, uh, you know, guys lack faith, but you're still humble. Like, here you are, right? I mean, you all just said, like, your laughs let it go. I mean... I might as well just say everybody in here was struggling with some portion of this tonight in this class because you all laughed, right? Don't act all of a sudden all <laughs> high and mighty, right? So I get, I get it. You know what I'm saying? Like you're some things, but then you lack these other areas. And that's the same thing. So Jesus Christ says, I'm going to call you Petros, which means little rock, a chip off the old block. 
but yet, let's read what happens here. Matthew 16, 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, of course, he's usually the first one to pipe up, answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. In other words, not human rationale, even. But my Father who is in heaven, remember the Father draws disciples, true disciples to himself. I also say to you that you are Peter, Petrus. And upon this rock, Petras, different. He's talking about himself there. Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Up here on the board, Peter, Petros, the chip off the old block. What an amazing bit of encouragement Peter received from the rock, Jesus Christ. The apostles were among the first living stones, little rocks, little chips off the old block. 1 Peter 2.5, but Christ is the cornerstone, 1 Peter 2.6.7. Hold your thumb there. Go quickly to 1 Peter 2.4 so you can see this through the eye gate. What an amazing bit of encouragement that Peter received, right? I mean, this is wonderful. Look at the things he just said to Peter. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build a church. You're going to be a part of it. You're going to receive the kingdom. It's going to be awesome. You're, a little, you know, you're Petros, a little rock. It's awesome. So there's like this... You know, there's goodness that's going on in this training up to lead the early church. But there's the dichotomy. First Peter second, or it's first Peter two four, <clears throat> and coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. That's Jesus. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. The precious stone, or precious, excuse me, this precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builder rejected, this became the very cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom, they were also appointed. Again, that's a reference back to individuals not being elected, individuals being arrogant, and so that Jesus Christ himself becomes a stumbling block. Again, the point of the board we're developing, of course, is Peter Petros, a chip off the old block. Again, what an amazing bit of encouragement Peter received from the rock, Jesus Christ himself. The apostles were among the first living stones, but Christ is the cornerstone. Okay, go back quickly to Matthew 16, 18, and we'll finish this up. Because this is the shocker, right? So Christ is like, you're Petros, chip off the old block. Look at all these wonderful things. And he's not saying, maybe I will, maybe. He's saying, I'm going to do these things. These things are yours. But as we read on, it's not always that easy, just like it isn't in our own lives. I also say to you that you are Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall been, have been given or have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things 
from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. Now, Peter took him aside. This is comical, right? This is comical. Peter took him aside. You can almost imagine. Hey, Jesus, come over here for a second. Let's talk man to man. <laughs> Peter, just take your shoe off and stuff it in your mouth because that's what's going to end up happening. Could have avoided this whole painful dialogue. But nonetheless, this is the dichotomy that we'll close with. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, my goodness. Saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, this is the same guy, Petrus, get behind me, Satan. Oh, man. Man. You are a stumbling block to me. But you, you ready? Human rationalism? You are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. See, human rationalism says, hey, but wait a minute. Didn't you say the kingdom was coming? And aren't you going to be the king? If you die, who's going to be the king? Oh, Jesus, come over here. Let me talk to you. That's human rationalism. If we kill the king, we can't have our kingdom. That's how stupid humanity is. And what does Christ say? Yes, Peter, I love you, man, but you're an idiot. You're such an idiot. Get behind me, Satan. Your, your mind is not, you can't even understand what I know. Your mind is not thinking straight. Your mind is thinking the way humans do. Because human rationalism says, uh, if you kill the king, kind of can't have a king over the kingdom. Where was, you know, these guys, remember, I've taught you this in the past, it's been a while, but their entire sort of... Um, Existence was, as, as a people, Israel, was expectant of the kingdom. And when they found that this was the Messiah, the king, that's where their eyes went. And it was, you know, all eyes on the kingdom. This is great. We're like hanging with the king. This is going to be awesome, right? We're hanging with the king. The kingdom's coming. They're not listening as we're going to learn. They don't understand stuff. Jesus is telling them plainly, I, I got to go die here, guys. Come here, Jesus. Why? Human rationalism. Human rationalism. That's how dangerous human rationalism is. We are out of time. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again for the privilege to study your word here this evening as family and the unity of faith. What a privilege and honor it is, Father. May we never become familiar with it, but rather embrace the opportunity to take the gospel of your Son out to a lost and dying world, Father. May we not wait. This world needs it. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.